Good evening, everyone, and welcome to UCLA Anderson, at least virtually. My name is Lori Santikin. I'm the faculty director of the UCLA Fink Center for Finance and a professor of finance and strategy here at Anderson. On behalf of the Fink Center, the UCLA Anderson Masters in Financial Engineering, and the entire UCLA Anderson family, I'm thrilled to welcome you to this very special event. The UCLA Fink Center for Finance aims to um, cultivate and translate innovation at the frontiers of finance. We do this by supporting and disseminating cutting-edge research, connecting academia with industry and policy, and training leaders along their professional journey. Today, we are privileged to partner with Women Investing in Security and Education to bring to our community insights from some of the most impressive individuals in finance who just coincidentally happen to be women. None of this would be possible without the dedication and commitment of women investing in security and education. And so I'd like to introduce Angela Daly, CEO of WISE, to introduce our program. Um, Casey, I think we, somebody needs to start my video. Whoops. Oh, there we go. Thanks, Lori. Thanks for the kind words and for being such a great partner to WISE. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Angela Daly, WISE CEO. We are thrilled and privileged to be partnering today with both UCLA and UC Berkeley, such prestigious universities. In 1997, a group of women, a very powerful group of women, met in Orange County to put on an investment conference for women. To their absolute amazement, more than 500 signed up for this event and they knew they were onto something. Fast forward 25 years. Yes, it's our 25 year anniversary. And WISE remains true to its mission of financial empowerment for females of all ages and all socioeconomic backgrounds. We do this because we believe that if you manage your money better, you're gonna have more opportunities and more options in life. WISE works through community organizations such as Girl Scouts, Girls Inc, universities and women's shelters. And every year we reach thousands with this empowerment message. Tonight's event is part of our groundbreaking Tearing Down the Pink Wall series, where we gather the best and the brightest in finance to both, to both uh, let us reach for the stars and educate us. Uh, we all under the mantra of she can be what she can see. Tonight, we have three financial world influencers. Karen Choi, the Capital Group, Sarah Ketterer, Causeway Capital, and Robin Potts, Can Canyon Partners. All these women share our passion for financial empowerment, and they are part of a very elite group. According to Morningstar, only 11% a portfolio managers are females. And this number sadly has not moved for a decade. And in fact, some surveys show it's going the wrong way. We have a two-part program. You're gonna hear market insights and then the career journeys that led them to the pinnacles of the financial community. We hope that we inspire all of you to reach for the stars and some of you to join us in financial services. Now, it is my great pleasure to introduce my close friend, our moderator, Consuela Mack. Consuela has been a very important part of this series since its inception and really what makes it unique, one of the things that makes it unique. She is one of the most influential financial journalists in this country. 
She was an anchor on CNBC. Now she hosts her own show, Wealth Track, on PBS, which Wise is very proud to be one of the sponsors of. Consuelo is a fierce advocate for diversity in the workplace, especially women in finance. So please join me in welcoming Consuelo and our distinguished panel. And one bit of housekeeping, we're going to take questions at the end, put them in the uh, Q&A box, not the chat box, and then Lori is going to field those questions. So Consuelo, showtime. Thanks, Angela. And I can't wait for those questions as well. And I want to thank you, Angela, and our fabulous hosts and our partners who are sponsoring this Tearing Down the Pink Wall series and this event in particular. I'm honored to be here with these influential women in finance, and I can't wait to hear their views from the top. <laughs> so there is a lot going on in the world right now in geopolitics, in the economy, and also in the markets. And they have much to share with us. But first of all, I just want to reiterate something that Angela just said, which is that we are all here with a common mission, and that is financial literacy, which is what WISE does in preparing girls and women for leadership roles in the dynamic financial services field. And it's what our three panelists represent. So this event is not just for women. However, for those of you out there who are not women, I want to make sure that you know that this is an inclusive uh, session here. Financial literacy is for everyone. It is really the key to financial security, which is a critical part of, of a successful personal and professional life. And I might have to put a plug in as well for the financial services industry because uh, I was part of it once. I've been covering it for 30 years. It is exciting. It's dynamic. It's competitive. Uh, and it can be incredibly rewarding, both personally and professionally. Uh, it's basically now open to all comers. So if you've got talent and you've got drive and you've got ambition and you've got discipline and the ability to deliver results, which is basically what the financial services industry cares about the most, there are huge opportunities in this field. And we'll be talking to three terrific representatives of it. So let's get started and meet our three panelists. Uh, and you've seen their bios. So I'm going to make my introduction to them brief. But first up, Karen Choi. She is a fixed income portfolio manager at the Capital Group. And for those of you who don't know the Capital Group, it is one of the most respected firms in the mutual fund and money management business. It's known for its disciplined team approach, and also its integrity and for putting clients first. And Karen manages investment grade corporate bond portfolios. Those are the you know, highest quality corporate bonds. Uh, and also she manages several portfolios at Capital Group under the American Fund's name. And prior to becoming a portfolio manager, she was an analyst specializing in the U.S. electric sector for over two decades, i.e. utilities. She is a chartered financial analyst and holds a BA in international relations from Wellesley College. And you'll see later when we get to our career section uh, why that's important for each of them. Sarah Ketterer is CEO of Causeway Capital, which she co-founded in 2001 highly respected global value firm, portfolio manager for its fundamental and absolute return strategies. Sarah is the winner of Morningstar's International Stock Fund Manager of the Year Award, a really a fantastic honor. Um, in 2017, she and her team are 
for her flagship Causeway International Value Fund, and she was nominated for the same award, which is extremely rare, in 2013. And her Causeway International Value and Causeway Global Value Funds carry Morningstar's highest rating, their gold analyst ratings, uh, which is, the, again, the highest that that firm gives. And Sarah has a BA in economics and political science, a double major from Stanford, and also holds an MBA degree from the Tuck uh, School of Business at Dartmouth. Finally, Robin Potts, co-head of real estate investments, director of acquisitions at Canyon Partners Real Estate. And the, that's the real estate direct investing arm of Canyon Partners, which I had never heard of on, until I started looking into Robin and it. It's a global alternative asset manager uh, with about $30 billion in assets under manage, management. It's an alternative asset manager. She supervises, originates the originations and the acquisitions of all real estate transactions at Canyon, over $14 billion worth of deals in 15 years there in debt and equity, commercial real estate. She oversees like all asset classes of which there are many. And just to, to name most of them, multifamily, condos, office, retail, hospitality, industrial, senior housing, student housing, for those of you who are interested in that, uh, and self-storage. She has been named one of the 25 most powerful people in commercial real estate in LA by an industry publication. She holds a BA in economics from Harvard. So as Angela mentioned, this is a two-part conversation. First, the investment climate for about a half an hour, and then we're going to talk about careers. How did they get to where they are? And we're going to ask them for some advice for the rest of us. And then Laurie Santikian will field questions from all of you. So as Angela suggested, please submit them to the Q&A box because we'd like to take as many as we can after we cover our two-part segments. So let me just quickly say the macro picture, the backdrop um, that all of our panelists are investing in is just incredible right now. I mean, it is, you know, the biggest changes in a couple of generations. We've got the highest inflation rate in 40 years. First time in 40 years that interest rates will actually be rising. The great bull market is over. We had the worst first quarter in the first quarter of this year in the bond market in its history. And one of the worst stock market uh, performances uh, in, to start a year uh, ever. So it ranks in one of the top 10. We also have a huge reversal in a trend that we've been used to and uh, expecting and gotten comfortable with in the last 30 years, which is globalization. We are now reversing that trend, going to deglobalization, where uh, there are going to be different regional uh, packs. People are basically working unilaterally. There is, instead of offshoring jobs, we are onshoring. This is a major, major shift. And we, as you all know, in the tragic war that's happening in Ukraine, we are in a scenario of a possible world Cold War II. I'm not going to say World War, but this is the worst outbreak of war in Europe since World War II. And the markets reflect all of these events on a daily basis. So our panelists have to consider it all. So my first question to each, um, and I, you know, I talked about a dynamic uh, field, the financial services industry. I mean, this is just an example. Uh, this is an incredible example of how exciting it can be and how challenging it can be. So 
Sarah, I'm going to start with you because you represent the equity piece um, of our panels. And in this changing and challenging investment environment, what are you paying the most attention to? What's what are the two biggest themes that you at, and Causeway are focusing on? Well, thanks for the question, Consuelo, and um, thank you, Angela, for inviting me. The What's always important, regardless of the economic environment or geopolitical environment, is valuation. So we focus on valuation because that is the only solid ground you walk on. All the other, everything else is moving. But if you can determine precisely what you're willing to pay based on very conservative assumptions, then you have an investment thesis and now you can go to work. Otherwise, as you noted, there's so many different distracting and conflicting events occurring all at once. You couldn't even get out of bed if you didn't have some sort of discipline on how to deal with that. And that's through valuation. And when you're talking about valuations, you're looking specifically at uh, individual securities, individual stocks. You're looking at stocks globally, both, and, and you're looking, at, you are value managers. So you're looking at valuations as a value manager. I read a recent interview that you just did with Morningstar, where you said for a value manager, you're like, you're screaming with joy <laughs> um, as the markets yeah. collapse around us. Um, so talk to us about um, the valuations that, that yeah. you all are seeing uh, at Causeway. I mean, put them into perspective. Hmm. Well, I just think about um, as much as I don't enjoy growing old, there are certain benefits. I started my career out of college and saw the 1987 market crash that happened in the U.S. and it was terrifying. And I didn't know what was going on. And Ten years later in Asia, there was an Asia financial crisis and stocks collapsed. They, they sold off. Now, this is what I mean by valuation. If you think about what a company has, it has assets and liabilities and has net worth. And often, as you think about net worth in terms of that's really the book value, and would you pay some multiple of book, would you, would you pay even book value for the business? What kind of return on its equity does it earn? Those are some of the calculations we do. We, we, we're always measuring how much cash does the business generate and how much cash will it generate? And if you discount that cash to present using a discount rate, and that's really important because now the discount rate's rising, then you determine what the business should be worth today. And in that 97 Asia meltdown, stocks traded for the level of cash they had on their balance sheet then. Literally, their market capitalization so dissolved, there was nothing left but just uh, and it was a, a buyer's dream. So that's why we get exuberant when we see irrational selling because investors can, and they did this into March of 2000, they sold everything. That was the uh, TMT, telecommunications, media, and technology bubble bursting. And then in 2020, March of 2020, we had a very brief sell-off until rescued by central banks and, uh, and governments. And that was due to COVID, just a panic. It really happened in more like February and then March of 2020 collapsing markets. And, and now, interestingly, in anticipation of what is a really an economic cycle, we we're supposed to have them, even though we tried to avoid them. Uh, we're, we're, gonna, we're seeing rising interest rates, they will continue to rise in most regions around the world with the interesting exception of China. And monetary liquidity, the amount of liquidity that's put into the banking system that's ultimately lent and therefore creates economic stimulus, that's being reined in by central banks. And all of that makes for a very sobering investment environment for speculative stocks, those where valuations were 
were irrationally high and now they're coming tumbling down which is something that we appreciate because that's what we do for a living. We analyze. And as I talked about before, that that solid ground is the valuation and it has to be made up of earnings that you can actually measure, not some idea. There might be someday earnings from a business. That's that's more like uh, speculating than it is investing. So this period, and, and then I'm going to move on to the other panelists, but this period is reminiscent of which of the market declines that you just mentioned. I mean, are the valuations that you're seeing now as, as good from a value yeah, manager's yeah. perspective, as attractive yeah. as they were, you know, in, I don't know, 1987 in yeah. the you know, global financial crisis or in March of 2020? Well, it's, Where are we? We're in a very unique environment. Every every meltdown has some resemblance to prior, but they're all different. And this okay. one, this one is inspired by the fact that we had we were oh, I think that we call the term over earnings. Stocks literally delivered, especially in the U.S. market, much more than they should have. Not but earnings went up, yes, but valuation multiples went up more. Right, the and price that, earnings multiples just expanded like and crazy. They did, right? They did, and that has a lot to do with what central banks have been doing, and the Fed in particular. The Fed created four trillion dollars of additional money supply from in the pandemic period. And that this created just so much money chasing a finite amount of assets or what we call asset price inflation. So assets prices went up, namely stocks, homes, um, old master paintings, fine bottles of wine. I don't care what it is. It all went up. And now, of course, we have uh, a central bank very nervous about about wage inflation, a real wage price spiral. So the stocks that are interesting today already they've they're already pricing in a full-on recession. It's uh, already in the price. So okay. that's, what's, that's what we're looking for is where the market has already discounted the downturn and yet the tightening has just started. Karen, let's bring you in because you know we think in, in a lot of the financial press covers the stock market more than they do the bond market. But what is going on in your market, Karen, is phenomenal. And that is, uh, you know, Paul Volcker in, you know, in the late, 1970s, early 1980s, basically, you know, murdered the economy in order to bring inflation down, which was in the, uh, you know, I, I don't know, running at you know 20% a year. So uh, right now we've had a we've had a 40 year bull market in bonds. Uh, it looks like that is finally reversing. Uh, Jerome Powell, the current Fed chair, has said, you know, that he's going to do what it takes. To bring inflation down, you know, it's it's running at eight percent levels in the consumer price index. The Fed target is two percent. That's going to be a lot of tightening. So this is a dramatic moment for you as well as a bond manager at Capital Group. So what are you all focused on at Capital Group in the fixed income world? So um, just to point out, so Capital Group, we are a private firm, and so we don't give any specific investment recommendations, and each analyst and portfolio manager actually has different views. There is no house view, so everything I say okay. today um, is my personal view, and it could change tomorrow, just to let everyone know. <laughs> um, but I would say, you know, as an investor, it's, it's our job to really predict the future. 
and my crystal ball is very, very fuzzy right now. There's a lot of snowflakes in there. But I would say one of the things that I was very convinced on that rates would definitely go higher this year and inflation is for real and it's going to stay around for a longer time than people expect. And and why do you say that, Karen? What's convincing you that inflation? I mean, just it's actually some really just even simple numbers. Just look at where um, unemployment is and job openings. You have a disconnect of six to seven million unemployed. 11 million jobs out there. So that wage inflation is real and it's going to take some time for it to change, right? Um, the, the supply issues are real and they're not getting any better. Um, if you, There are quite a few calls that happened over the last few days and you're hearing the supply issues and supply constraints may not really improve dramatically for everyone anytime soon. So there, those, those will still be lingering for some time. So I am in the camp that um, inflation is real and stagflation is a real possibility here. And I have never really invested in this type of environment in my entire life. Very um, few people have, incidentally. <laughs> I mean, you, you would have had to have been, you know, a full-blown adult uh, portfolio manager in 1980. So that was, you know, more than 40 years ago. So overall, I have a fairly cautious outlook and I came into the year with a high level of cash and a fairly cautious outlook. And I I was short duration. I did think I was genius because I covered my duration short very like back in March. But here we are. Duration, (laughs) explain what duration is. Duration is basically um, the length of the maturities of your portfolio. And in terms of where the five and 10 year were at the time, they were under 2%. Um, and they st- we started up a year closer to 1%. Right. And we're closer to 3% today. Right. Five and I thought, treasuries. And I, mm-hmm. Yeah, treasuries. And I thought I was genius because I, w- I was short duration from 1% to 2%. And I covered that. But no, look at where we are today. So in terms of where interest rates will end up at the end of the year, I'm not the expert there. <laughs> I'm not the Fed watcher. But I do think there's chances that it could be around the same or higher. So um, that's kind of what I'm thinking in terms of uh, stagflation, though, could be real. And I do think, you know, my sense is that we go into a recession in the next 12 to 18 months. And, and stagflation uh, being that inflation's pretty high and economic growth is pretty slow. Will slow down. Right. Will slow I, down. I, yeah. And I think Europe will lead uh, uh, will lead that and then we will follow. So and, and, and you say that because Europe right now, their economies, I mean, they've got a, a war on the continent, so their and economies they, are slowing uh, faster and more dramatically than our economy is. Yes. Right? And a- energy prices. I mean, I'm hearing about shortages everywhere globally and even in the U.S. I keep hearing all the different and that this is because I'm, I'm still close to the utility sector, but there are going to be some shortages over the summer. So um there could be some really high energy prices. And I think I, you know, the latest numbers I saw was electricity prices were up for consumers 11%. Those numbers could be a lot higher over the summer. So that's going to read it really eat into the consumer's pocket. So um, I don't think that changes anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And that dynamic is going to be, um, is going to play out over the rest of the year. So although I'm, you know, although I would say the, we're not, I'm not telling a very rosy picture, but I would say as an investor is actually, I would say it's very similar to what Sarah said. It's exciting. 
um, there are opportunities out there and we're just continuing to watch all the different things that are going on in the market. And maybe there's some companies that I really, really like, and the valuations are starting to look a little attractive and we're reinvesting at higher rates too. I'm buying some company bonds, very short duration, like three to five year bonds yielding 5%. I couldn't get anywhere near that two years ago or even a year ago. So there are some interesting opportunities that are reappearing and are appearing now. So it's actually a very exciting time to be investing. It does feel, you feel sick to your stomach sometimes when you're making those investments, but at the same time, you know, there are some exciting things going on. So everyone is watching the Federal Reserve. And uh, the one of the things that uh, has been a criticism of this Federal Reserve is that that it, it really, you know, just didn't have the nerve to to rein in inflation, that it was that it was not going to be as firm as Paul Volcker was in the early 1980s. And Jerome Powell has come out and said that he would do what it takes but it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it. Uh, you know, we've only had two interest rate increases uh, so far this year. Uh, so how closely are you watching what the Fed is doing? And is uh, if, if the Fed turns out not to be as strong as it's saying it's going to be in fighting inflation, what does that do? I think they'll do 50 and 50, but I don't think they 50 do 50 basis points or a half I don't think, I don't, point. I, yes, I don't think they do 75 basis points or a hundred basis points. I think right. that would, that would really spook the market. Um, and I, I just, I think they're going to be slower and they're going to be steady and, but, but unless something dramatically changes, I don't see them going off course too much. Okay. Robin, real estate. Um, everybody cares about real estate. You, you deal in the commercial real estate field. Um, I know there's this new series on TV about WeWorks and so, um, <laughs> that, I, that I've, I've heard is, you know, is terrific, uh, an amazing story. But what are you talking about at, at Canyon? Um, so, you know, the real estate market is, is a different space than Sarah and Karen just described in that, you know, it's private market transactions and within the private markets, um, the story is going to take longer to actually play out from a valuation perspective. The public markets really reflect, uh, you know, kind of immediate reaction to all of the news and in the private real estate markets, um, owners of assets can, can wait and see and be more patient on transacting, uh, unless there's a, you know, a forced event, which is causing them to transact. So um, there's a lot of discussion right now about where valuations for commercial real estate are headed because that price discovery needs to play out. It's not, it's not a perfectly transparent uh, process. And, um, you know, real estate, generally speaking, is um, on the one hand benefits tremendously from an inflationary environment because for many asset classes within real estate, rents can reset frequently, like, for example, in apartment projects where you can uh, be resetting rents annually for tenants. Um, And uh, so on on the one hand, that's a positive in this environment for real estate. But on the other hand, uh, real estate is generally a leveraged asset. And so the rising rate environment and the relationship between your borrowing costs and cap rates is something that um, at the moment, uh, things are a little bit upside down and, and you have a negative leverage situation with, with respect to where cap rates are relative to, to rates. So and, and cap rates are what? Uh, so cap rates are the, uh, the rate that you apply to an income stream to, to value real estate. So it's you know, the inverse of, of an equity multiple in, in the public markets. Um, and 
so right now, for example, uh, kind of prior to the volatility, you might see an apartment building trade at a three and a half cap rate because you could buy um, you could buy an asset utilizing uh, debt in the low threes from an interest rate perspective. And now that same debt is in the mid fours, but the cap rates haven't moved up uh, commensurately. And so um, there is a, a negative leverage uh, concept uh, in the market currently that, that needs time to play out. Um, and then the other thing that we're paying a lot of attention to, because uh, we invest a lot within the development space, so we're highly involved in terms of asset creation um, and the construction of new assets. Uh, within that space, the inflation environment is really affecting the construction costs, and, and overall, uh, the supply chain issues are also driving up construction costs. So we spend a lot of time evaluating um, the relationship between the rent growth, which is very strong relative to how the costs have changed and whether that equation still makes sense to proceed forward on a new opportunity. And I, I read one of the uh, reports that you all, that Canyon had put out uh, to clients uh, about conditions in the marketplace. And, you know, you just mentioned, so multifamily uh, buildings are still very attractive, I guess, as an investment, but things uh, like office space, is not necessarily, and I'm, I was wondering, uh, you know, how you all look at the the great resignation that we, you know, <laughs> we've heard about uh, the fact that so many uh, millennials are are really very reluctant to go back to the office, and they're you know quite uh, outspoken about that, and it's a tight labor market, so they have some clout. So it, as far as the how is that uh, affecting the finances um, of of the commercial commercial real estate in the office space, for instance? Sure. So, uh, so as you pointed out, multifamily fundamentals have been almost universally strong across the board and across different profiles of multifamily. Um, the office sector has been. Um, quite disparate in terms of outcomes for specific buildings. And so um, within you know, the post-COVID environment with flexible work and a hybrid work environment and the need for employers to essentially um, be able to provide office space that's attractive and has amenities and, and the ability to um, kind of induce people to come back and return and be together as a team. Um, there has been kind of a, a major distinction between high quality office projects. Um, and so we've seen tenants really demonstrate a flight to quality preference versus your more commodity type office space. Um, and so I think in general, and it's going to take a fair amount of time to play out, but um, many cities across the U.S. have outdated uh, an older office stock, and um, that ultimately needs to be kind of repurposed or transitioned into a new use over time. So we're actually seeing a number of uh, real estate owners and operators propose conversions of office space to other uses, um, while your you know newly built high quality office in, in strong locations um, and growing markets across the country, we think will really outperform. I know you don't do retail housing per se, single family homes, but do you have any thoughts? Um, I'm thinking of our audience. They might be renting or they might, you know, they'd like to buy a home at some point. What's your sense of the housing market? Um, so the housing market is, has been kind of incredibly constrained from a supply perspective. And as a result, um, you've seen within the single family market, 
just an incredible price appreciation, which uh, has made it very challenging for first-time home buyers. Um, and there's been a just a tremendous amount of competition. And now you've compounded that uh, price escalation uh, with rising interest rates, and you know, seeing mortgages now uh, at the five percent level for the first time in, in you know over a decade. Um, and so that combination, uh, really, in in my view, kind of tips the equation very much in favor of renting. Um, so that rent versus own equation and, and what is your monthly payment, um, uh, even with the significant rent growth increases that you've seen across the US within the apartment space, um, uh, we think that, that it ultimately just continues to strengthen the apartment fundamentals, uh, given the single family home market with the combination of the price increases, the supply, uh, constrained supply, and the increase in the mortgage rates, um, kind of all combining together to make that less affordable. So I'm going to switch now to strategies. And Sarah, let me uh, let me start with you. You mentioned, uh, and I mentioned, the fact that from a, a value investor's perspective, uh, the more stocks decline, markets decline, uh, the better it is from a valuation perspective. So where, what are you doing? Where are you seeing the biggest opportunities? Mm, it's where the market has been most savage uh, in the in the realm of companies that actually have earnings and cash flow. As I mentioned earlier, the stocks that have fallen the hardest this year have been those that have not. What and to put this back in sort of fixed income parlance to fit on an equity model, those will be very long duration stocks. In other words, there's so much, there's no cash today. It's all promised sometime so far out in the future that you're going to be waiting a long time to get it. And that makes them especially rate sensitive. So as rates are rising and are expected to rise quite a bit more, those are the stocks that have fallen the most, or think right. of it as multiple shrinkage. So that's not where we're looking, but where we are looking are areas like banks, for example, uh, they tend, and they've, we've seen this in prior cycles, they tend to sell off. In other words, their multiples fall and they tend to underperform as you are approaching recession. And we're expecting, if it's not a technical recession, certainly have a significant slowing of the US economy. And I, I agree, I think Europe's going into recession, has all kinds of problems. But that doesn't, there's no reason not to go shopping, even though it looks like there's going to be an economic slowdown because markets are very anticipatory. Equity markets price in events long before they occur. So they price in the downturn way before it even happens. And the most sensitive stocks that do that are typically cyclical. And amongst those, the biggest culprits are the banks because they're just levered. They're, you think of them, they've got a little tiny amount of... Um, you know, assets and then they uh, and they right. they do quite a lot. Well, time out of equity on on a big uh, pool of assets and they do quite a lot with it. So they they're obviously in much better shape than they were in the 2008 global financial crisis. I mean that's not that's a pretty low bar, but they're in so many different markets as markets are beginning to anticipate a slowdown, a significant slowdown. The bank stocks have tumbled and interestingly. And that's why I bring them up to levels that we saw during the global financial crisis, to those sorts of valuation levels. Think about it on a, on a price, we call price tangible book value. So you take the, remember I talked about assets, less liabilities as net worth or book value. If you strip out anything that's intangible, the squishy stuff, and, and you end up with real book value, that's, that's, um, that is real value for shareholders. The When those price to 
um, tangible book value multiples get to something like 0. 0.25, 0. 0.3, 0. 0.4, those are crisis levels. Again, very reminiscent in particular of European banks that, that we saw in the global financial crisis. But what's in, different now, and this is why we get excited because that's just a sort of blanket sell-off. They were all decapitated at once. And that's what we call indiscriminate selling. But these banks are in demonstrably better shape than they were back then. They have raised lots of capital. They have huge, what we call capital cushions. So they have, they have equity to assets. The equity portion is much bigger now, and it's far in excess of what their bank regulators in their regions demand. And they're already being allowed, despite the fact that we are approaching an economic slowing period and rates are rising, to return capital to shareholders. So their own regulators are signaling that they're in sufficiently good shape. They can carve out some of the money that they're earning and send it back to our clients, their shareholders, and in terms of dividends and and. I mean, there are a couple of banks that we've seen in Europe that are doing buybacks over the next three years. Will stock buybacks? Yes, yeah, mm -hmm. stock buybacks. They will. They'll buy back some of their shares outstanding. And when they when you buy back stock at such a low price to book value, it's very accretive. And all this, all of a sudden, it's th think about it as price to book um, per share. You've got book value per share, so many fewer shares, and now you have this bigger. You have this. The, the ratio looks much more attractive, let's put it that way. So from a price right. to book perspective, we're getting a tremendous bargain. And you know there are many different industries, but what they have in common now is they're generally cyclical because it, once February 24th rolled along and Russia invaded Ukraine and this incredible human tragedy unfolded, investors, uh, they do what's called shoot first and ask questions later. A lot mm -hmm. of stocks were just sold and nobody has really under they don't understand yet where earnings are headed but if you look out beyond the next 12 months to the next 24 the 36 months it's much easier to make a projection because you can we can look through the downturn to the recovery and start to price that in if you're a, someone who expects cataclysm you shouldn't own stocks at all just put your money under the pillow and um or maybe it's crypto you should own i have no idea <laughs> So, Karen, what about putting your money into bonds? You know, are, are you when I'm listening to uh, to Sarah, it's you know, you can see as a value manager that she does have nerves of steel. She's been through these these cycles before. Um, you know, what what's your strategy uh, in in the bond market? You, you mentioned a little bit of it, but are, are there you know huge opportunities being created or do you see any? You know, bottom in sight uh, is is the great bond you know bull market of the last forty years. Is it definitively over? Just uh, what's your strategy? I think it's interesting because I do think uh, people believe that if you invest in the bond market today, that you're going to just continue to bleed money. But if you look back at history, some of our own funds. Um, the returns are actually very similar in rising rate environments and declining rate environments because we get to reinvest at the higher rates. So it's really, for me, it's about making sure that I'm reinvesting and I'm reinvesting in companies that I think are just going to do well in, in general. And so it's really being disciplined and not really being scared and, and just selling everything or going all into cash. It's really being disciplined about continuing to reinvest because I think at the end of the day, um, it, it, yes, you know, depending on how, dra how dramatic the treasury rate moves are going to be, you could still have an okay year in corporate bonds. Might not be this year, but over the long term, your returns could be quite 
okay over the long term because think about it, like I said, you know, tenure at three percent, your overall yields you're getting four or five percent on a corp investment grade corporate bond, whereas you were getting almost nothing <laughs> two years ago, right? So that's a pretty big difference, and you're you're continuing to invest when rates are going higher. So. I'm not as, as negative, but at the same time, um, you have to continue to reinvest. And then I, I think spreads overall is another part of the picture and investment grade products or spread products. So they're, they're I mean, they're, the they're spreads so, it, being the difference between uh, bonds of different maturities, right? The, say, well, and also or, it's the spread to the treasury. So when okay, we started, the, the, treasury when and we a, started I, the year, I would say maybe the corporate index, which included the treasury and the spread, um, investment grade corporate spread, you were probably yielding like 2%. And so today you're probably four to 5%, but that's including the treasury part of it, which is closer to 3%. And then the corporate spread today was like 150-ish, so four and a half. So you're, you're actually getting a little bit more spread on the investment grade side also. Mm -hmm. And over time, if you look at really long periods of time, it really doesn't go much wider than two to 300. So even basis though, points, so yes, two to three percent, full percentage points. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you'll see that collapse over time as, 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 um, as the economy start to change too. So like Sarah said, basically the markets will predict, uh, the markets will react much quicker than what 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 the numbers or the economic numbers will fall out when the economic numbers will fall out. I think in terms of even equity markets generally predict um, the the end of a recession four months prior, right? And so so that so you'll see that change happening over time. And so overall, I I think um, just continuing to invest is the right strategy. Robin, strategy uh, as far as your financing the kinds of deals, what what are what are the strategies that you are doing um, at Canyon? Um, so we're we're nimble in that we can invest up and down the capital stack. We have both debt strategies and equity strategies. I think mm -hmm. um, one of the the more interesting areas within real estate right now uh, is within the credit space. Um, so as a direct lender, you know, we can originate senior debt or subordinate debt uh, on real estate opportunities ranging from, you know, existing assets with a bridge and lease up or transitional play to uh, construction financing. And in markets like this, where um, banks are pulling back and, you know, taking a wait and see approach or just a more risk off approach generally, um, other types of lenders uh, have pulled back pretty significantly as well across uh, CMBS and the CLO markets for, for real estate. Um, you're seeing a, a, you know, a gap that alternative direct lenders can fill at much higher absolute yields than you were looking at at the beginning of the year um, with you know, very strong borrowers with substantial you know, subordinate cash equity investment in high quality real estate. And so um, it's a pretty exciting kind of adjustment to the market uh, for a direct lender within uh, commercial real estate, in, in my view. So I'm going to ask you, we're, we're going to switch over to the career segment uh, in one minute. But my last question in the investment segment is, so if you had one piece of advice uh, for investors in this volatile, highly charged market environment, uh, what would it be? Robin, do you want to lead us off in answering that? Sure. So I think... Um, 
you know, and, and Sarah mentioned this a bit earlier, um, that everything just got, you know, more either kind of cheaper if from an equity perspective or from a debt perspective, you know, more yieldy than it was just a short while ago. So, um, so long as you have the capacity to, to be making new investments right now, this is uh, a much more opportunistic environment to be finding interesting things to do. So um, I think it's pretty exciting kind of across the board. Sarah, what, 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 is, what is your uh, one piece of advice to investors? Well, I have the same piece of advice regardless of the market environment, and that's be diversified. We use a, we have a, a group of quantitative specialists on our team who have what's called a, this sounds very complex, it kind of is, a multi-factor risk model. And it allows us to understand at least the market portion of risk, because there are, there are risks where there's market sensitivity known as beta, and there's volatility risk, and there's size risk, and value and growth risk. But, but being able to parse that out and know just how you're positioned. And the reason why I keep emphasizing this is because you just don't know what's going to hit you. Like we've had so many crises and exogenous events pop up. And we went from the pandemic and then to this invasion of Ukraine and the and exacerbation of inflation. So even though I talked earlier about cyclicals, we have economically defensive stocks in the portfolio too. The key is to is to be defensive and and cyclical and do so with the better companies because we really don't know which way this is headed. We, we do expect inflation, but it, um, but just how severe the downdraft will be and what other event might occur, who, who knows? <laughs> Karen, same question to you. Your so, one piece of, of, of advice uh, to investors. Don't panic and look, and look to invest for the longer term because I think time General, like if you have time and you can invest two to five years out, I think you end up making the right decision. If you're trying to panic and, and, and you're looking at the markets every day and, and you try to, I mean, I wouldn't react to the everyday movements in the, the markets. I would just not panic, take a deep breath, look at the valuations and invest for the long term. Because in the end, I think that's, that's how you succeed. Uh, I'm going to, in, in thanks, and we're going to move on to the career part now, but I just, I want to encourage our audience to submit their questions. And I'm looking, just uh, put your question in the Q&A box. So uh, we would love to take some of your questions after this next segment. So let's move to the career segment of this. And Sarah, I'm going to start with you. Um, you know, this is all about, you know, how you got to where you are today. We want some, uh, some personal anecdotes. And also we want to know your advice for us as well. So I'm, I'm going to start out with how important your education was to your career path. And as I mentioned in my introduction to you, uh, you know, you had a, have a, a BA, I think it's in economics and, uh, and, uh, and political science. Um, and then you got an MBA. So how important uh, were those degrees, if at all, to your uh, career path? They were those degrees in particular, the combination of those extremely important to where I am today. But I, I to give you a big caveat, I, we've hired many talented research analysts in, in our firm. Again, we manage equities only, and they're not particularly interested in getting a graduate degree, and they're doing just fine. So it really depends on the individual. I just I came out of college, very theoretical, as one, one often does, 
and launched into the world of corporate finance, taking companies public and doing some quick valuation work, but a lot of a lot of drudge stuff like preparing a prospectus, the document that <laughs> allows investors to know what what it is they're buying if they ever even read it, uh, and lots of tire kicking, really understanding the companies and making sure that the accountants were satisfied. Anyway, I did that for a couple of years, and I really still hadn't learned anything particularly useful. I mean, I could have gone on to be an investment banker. I don't think it's a particularly salutary career for women or anyone, frankly. I I know more broken homes out of that industry than any other. Uh, but after I finished dissing that, I don't think there's anybody on the call, ideally, who's... No, and, and, and that's where I'm just saying that's I'm a insulting. to our audience out there. <laughs> but that, you know, investment bank used to be the place that everybody yeah. and every MBA wanted yeah. to go. And you're saying, forget about it. Yes. Well, I went there too. Even after grad school, yeah. I went there. But I... I just found the hours ridiculous and the the key is you've got to keep learning when you're in your 20s you got to keep learning all the time and if you're not if you've stagnated and there's no opportunity to to be learning more leave this is a job environment I think um co-panelists have talked about there's there's employers are we are hungry for people so you can go anywhere you like if if until we are in recession, so I would do it now. But but um, but that's a great opportunity to keep learning. Yeah. So I thought education was really important. It wasn't just what I learned; it was the people I met, the networking, the connections, the the classmates. Ultimately, went on to run other. I have a both undergrad and MBA in yes. business school. Yes. Okay, both. both. Okay, but particularly grad school. Um, and I needed to talk running an, an asset management firm. We're not very big, uh, but compared to the Leviathans out there, like a capital group, but we share some of the same problems. And I have had former classmates who've been the CEOs for periods of time of other significant asset managers, some of them publicly listed, and they've been invaluable sources of advice for me. Mm -hmm. And I've tried to reciprocate. So yeah, I think there's a something to be said. It's a big opportunity cost to go to grad school. You're missing out on, on earnings. And it's obviously quite expensive. But I thought it was well worth it. All right. Well, our other two panelists chose not to go to grad school. So Karen, let me ask BA in International Relations at Wellesley at one of the Seven Sisters. It's an all women's school. How important was your uh, education in your career choice and trajectory? Um, not as important, <laughs> but it, I think it really is. In it, I think it's it's different for every individual person. Being a Korean American, the only jobs that my parents ever thought they would want me in is the, the, the legal field or being, you know, it's basically a you, doctor or a, a doctor. Lawyer, or lawyer. Exactly. Right. Okay. That's it. Okay. And I, at one point <laughs> I aspired to be um, in the communications business because I didn't really see many Asians and there was Connie Chung back then. And so there were not that many Asian female and, you know, a lot of these professions at that time. So that was kind of my third choice. So for me, it was really taking the opportunities that presented themselves over the years. And so the advice that I would give young women is that, you know, I think Sarah hit one on the head was relationships. Relationships actually mm -hmm. matter. And one of the things that I see all the time is that women pull back and they don't build the relationships over time because you just don't know how someone can help you over the long run. And I would say my husband is excellent at that. And so I learned a lot from my husband and what he does. So it's really, you know, remember build relationships over your career because you just never know where you'll, you'll, you'll end up and who can help you or who you can um, 
actually help also. So it's the, that part of it. And so um, for me, the MBA didn't matter either because I already had my MRS. So it wasn't like I needed to go get my MBA. So right. it wasn't as important, but I did it for investment management. I think if you don't have your MBA, it is very much um, encouraged for people to get their CFA. So I do have my right. CFA. Chartered and, financial analyst, right. Yes. And so I would say if you do decide not to go to get your MBA, I would get your CFA because I think that is very helpful. And a lot of investment management firms will actually, you know, see them equivalent to each other and getting your CFA is a lot, lot cheaper. <laughs> right. And it's a lot of work, I might it's a add, lot of work, and it's but really it's a, hard to get it. Um, but, but it's yeah, a it's much a less, it, it, it must less um, costly. Right. Option. Right. So Robin, uh, BA in economics, um, not getting your MBA, what was, and, and how important was your major and, uh, and your education, your undergraduate education and the decision not to get an MBA to your career? Um, so my undergraduate major was, was in economics mm -hmm. and, uh, overall my undergraduate e education was incredibly important in terms of the relationships that I formed there and also being, um, a very, a, a school that had great recruiting access. And so, um, I was able to go, you know, from undergrad into investment banking directly because of the recruiting resources on campus, um, at Harvard, and, right. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so uh, because of going into investment banking and the relationships that that I was able to create there and the training that investment banking provides um, and then kind of the launch pad to be able to access jobs from there, I ultimately determined that I was on the trajectory and had the network um, that I was looking for to be able to just continue on in my career versus uh, going back to school for the MBA. But um, certainly I know many, many friends and colleagues in the industry who have um, had a tremendous experience. Uh, so I, you know, I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answer. It just depends if you're, you know, if you're looking to course correct and get access to a different set of job opportunities, MBAs are fantastic for that. Um, but if you're, you know, already at a place you want to be and think there's enough opportunities where you are, then, uh, you know, that's, that's really how I felt and, and how I continued on. You know, the three of you went to very prestigious schools, undergrad, uh, so how important was that? And, you know, you're both in your three, the three of you are in positions where you're hiring people as well. And what difference does it make in this day and age if you go to a prestigious uh, university or college or not? Uh, Sarah, do you want to start? Because you are running a firm. <laughs> it's employee owned. I mean, how important yeah. is that Ivy League degree? What do you look at? Um well, I'll give you a story. The one of the fastest rising partners at Causeway, because we've got 30, 30 individuals own our firm, and we started with many fewer. And over time, as as the talent has risen, we've awarded more equity to those people. And we have a couple of superstars who came in and just after I'd say a learning period just went up sharply in terms of career progression. And one of them is a colleague named Fusheng. He's now uh, running our China business, but he he got his um, undergraduate degree in China in like pharmacology. And he's then he went on to get his MD in China. And then he came to the US and 
he contacted one of our colleagues and said, I'd like to be in healthcare um, equity analyst. And he could almost almost unintelligible anyway. <laughs> like, you got to be kidding me. Go get your MBA. We sort of, that was the, how we deferred him. And uh, he did. But he went to Duke at the Fuqua School. And we're like, we hadn't hired anybody from Duke before, but not nothing wrong with it. And we just hadn't had anybody apply. And uh, he sort of reminded us, it doesn't really matter where you go as long as you're really good. I think he graduated at the top of his class. He's incredibly intelligent. And his being bilingual, he's able to do for us what so few can. But his medical knowledge made him an excellent equity analyst, did a lot of self-teaching. And I think it, that sort of would be my advice. I'm not sure it really does matter where you go to school, as long as you make the most of it. And it's very impressive for an employer to to interview somebody who's outstanding. So he or she went wherever they went and they did really well like that. Just showing that aptitude and that drive in, in college or university is, is impressive. You know, Karen, I, I want to ask you because I too went to a women's and all women's college. It, it made a huge difference in my self-confidence, I think, quite honestly. But, um, you know, does it how much does it matter at Capital Group, for instance, or when you're looking at candidates um, of, you know, where they went undergrad or, you know, is, is it a uh, so how I much difference? So I would say today it's, le- that, you know, going to the right school is not as important. It's not something that we focus on as much. In fact, we're actually looking beyond the target schools that we used to go to. And as a mother of kids who are applying to college in the next few years too, I mean, it is like really difficult now. It's a totally, it's, it's random too, in terms of what school kids get into. At the end of the day, I think if you're smart, you're going to be smart regardless of where you are. If you're going to be a good investor, you're going to be a good investor. So I think, you know, and to be a great investor, you know, there might be a couple of things that are, that might be different, but at the same time, everyone on this call is smart enough to be an investor, but to be the great investor, there are other attributes that I think are probably necessary to have. And and, and that's like being creative. Uh I would say being creative, thinking outside the box. I think that has really helped me uh, with, my investment decisions because, and having, being able to have a different view from the market and holding steady to that, even though when it feels really bad for a very long time. So there are different things that I think can make you an outstanding investor over time. But at the same time, I think there are, you know, plenty of people here on this call today that could be, that can become an investor regardless of what school they went to. Robin, same question to you. So, you know, I, I, I do think um, when I entered the workforce, it was of greater importance in terms of opening doors where you went to school. Today, um, I think there's a much broader perspective in terms of accessing talent. Um, in particular, there's a tremendous emphasis within uh, finance of, of accessing diverse talent. And there's a lot of discussion industry-wide about um you know, being able to go through different channels and create those relationships in different ways for hiring. So I think it's, you know, it's a fantastic time uh, to be, you know, a woman in the industry and and looking for that, that next job. And, um, you know, you don't necessarily need to have the perfect traditional background to, to get a foot in the door. 
that is a question that I want to ask each of you as well is, is what difference has it made being a woman to your career success or to your career period? Robin, do you want to start with that? Sure. So, um, you know, the commercial real estate industry is an extremely male dominated industry. Um, and because it's, you know, within the private markets, I think, uh, the, um, barriers to entry for, for females are, um, they're harder to break down, uh, because they're privately owned assets and, you know, just all direct intermediaries in terms of how you create relationships. And so, um, it's definitely been, uh, an interesting experience being in, uh, the commercial real estate industry. And I think it's, it's gotten significantly better, uh, over time. Um, but that, you know, relationship and networking aspect of real estate in terms of how you secure opportunities and source deals, um, is a real, factor uh that that women have to contend with um but i would say that it's worth it's worth investing the time and finding you know your groove to be able to do that within commercial real estate because it's such a creative uh industry where you can you know touch and feel the asset in which you're investing you can you know uh make investments within cities and communities that really change the landscape or make an investment and bet on the path of growth um, and I do think overall the industry is is really embracing diversity in a different way uh, now than it has historically. And do you want to? Sh- can you share an anecdote of how did you break through? How did you break into the industry? <laughs> um, well, I I. Uh, I started in investment banking. I uh, was in the financial institutions group covering mortgage REITs. um, And through that experience, uh, got some exposure to direct real estate investors. And so I specifically uh, looked uh, post-investment banking to join real estate private equity. And um, being located in LA, uh, you know, Canyon was was at the top of my list in terms of firms to join. Uh, So I started as an analyst at Canyon. Um, and, uh, ultimately, you know, over many years, uh, was promoted and had the opportunity to continue to grow, uh, in my role here, uh, which is a little bit unusual to stay at the same firm for such a long time. Um, but I had tremendous mentors every step of the way, um, to help me form the relationships that I needed. And, um, that, you know, mentorship element of, of being able to be successful in the business, I think was, was really critical to my success. I mean, male dominated industry, male mentors, primarily, primarily. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sarah, what difference has it made being a woman uh, in the industry? I mean, to your career success, it's I'm convinced it's made a big difference. It is um, because I I look like we all tend to want to find people when we hire them that are kind of like us. It's a human tendency. In fact, we do have a lot of training to keep the men from doing that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That is joke true, out of Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, jokes aside, I, I think the women that we hire know that we care about women because uh-huh. our CEO is female. And so that, because the, and our COO, our chief operating officer who's been with us since inception is also female. So a lot of the, we, until we added a few people to our board and we were predominantly a female run organization and that made it safer and maybe more inviting for their women to join us. So that I know was useful from a, a talent perspective and clients appreciate it. And 
it's so true. They really are looking for diverse managers. We're not really that. Um, over time, I've diluted my equity stake to get into the hands of younger colleagues. But it's, it's I can see the, the need, the just urgent need by clients, particularly big public funds and their pension plans. They want to have managers across the, the whole spectrum of, of different races, different genders. They, they can't have all white males or there'll be political difficulty for them. And so they've gone out of their way. And I, I just think that's something that all women should know that they're really welcome in this industry. But how did you you get there? Yeah. Uh, when yeah. it was a male dominated industry and it still is, of course, but when well, it was really I mean, male again, dominated, I mean, I, so I'm from another era, but all the doors were closed in my face in investment banking and I had to force myself to open them. Like, like, what did you do? Well, the closed door means you're not wanted in this meeting, but if you don't go in the door, you won't learn anything and you'll end up doing all the shitty work instead of what you want to do, which is the more advanced work. So I, you know, it's like my a hundred pound hand reach for the door and I would turn it and then open it. Uh, and then it was just awful, all eyes, you know, staring. Uh, yes. Well, then all the mentors end up being men, of course. So, but they were wonderful. And I just had to get more confidence. That was the one thing I lacked. Like I had the curiosity and the intelligence and the drive. I just, I didn't have enough confidence and it just took years. And that's why, you know, we sort of launched our firm when we did. Uh, my business partner and I were just at the point where we both, and in my case as a woman, I just had that level of confidence that was a, just, just got to the level where I was ready to go off on, on, cause it's quite an adventure when you're on your own. They call that yeah. cash, cash burn. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, uh, so what difference has being a woman made, do you think, uh, in your career? I would say it's made a tremendous difference, right? I would say, and it's been good and bad. So I, I think, you know, the other part for me is that I am Asian, I am Korean American. So when I walk into the room, it's not unusual that I'm the only female and I'm the only minority. So, which is, it's tough too. And I would say, um, I, for me, how do I deal with it? It's just really enduring and also finding commonality with people. Right. So I did have to like read a little bit more about sports <laughs> to have a conversation about someone about golf or, or, or football, because I just felt like that was the interest. I do less yeah, of that. Do your now. homework. Okay. I, yeah. I had, I had to do a lot of that in the beginning. And the other thing is like, it wasn't unusual when people thought I was the person who was like the, I was the analyst and not the senior person in the room. So that happened quite a bit. Like, Hey, can you grab me a cup of coffee? I'm like, mm, <laughs> not, not quite. I'll ask someone else to get you your coffee. But now, um, I would say I speak up, I, I go in a room and I'm literally the only female. And I'll say to the CEO, I said, what's going on here. You got to change this. This is ridiculous. <laughs> right. And so I think it's important for a woman to speak up. And I think the confidence issue is real. And there's even a book, uh, the confidence code about it. I just, I want to give this example. I do like my husband's amazing. And, but, and I learn from him all the time, but it's pretty incredible when I watch him in his meetings or I watch what he does, because there's no way I would say the things that he does or do the things he would say, like he would tell you he's an expert at in like in teaching girls or be, what, what he's an expert in what it, what it means to be a girl because he has four girls. He would tell me he's an expert at breastfeeding because he's seen me breastfeed four girls. I'm like, no, it's not quite the same, <laughs> right? Whereas I would never say I'm, I'm an expert at any of that, 
So like he has really taught me that I need to be much more confident and I need to speak up more. And so what I do now is like, sometimes when I go into a room or when I have like an issue that comes up, I said, what would Sam do? What would my husband do? So I put on that hand and say, what would he do in this situation? And he would not back down. He would speak up. He would ask for every penny that he's worth and more just FYI. And so it's, a, I mean, so that's what I do to kind of get over my own internal imposter syndrome or fears, et cetera. Uh, and I think I, I would encourage all you women out there to do the same. You guys are all incredible and you're probably under your selling yourselves, even in your interviews. So stand out by just being more confident and like believe in yourself because I believe in all of you. Robin. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree on, on the confidence gap issue. Um, it took, it took a very long time for me to be comfortable, um, speaking up in, in group situations. I, you know, similar to what Karen describes, um, I, you know, I, I can't even count the number of meetings where I'm the only female in the room. And I feel, you know, I have historically felt an obligation to, know kind of a hundred percent of the facts before I would put myself out there um, because uh, it felt too risky to essentially, um, you know, uh, BS my way through something right. like a male colleague might do and get away with. I might not be able to get away with that. Um, and so I think, you know, as a result, that kind of overcompensation in some ways helped me advance uh, in in the way that that I have in the organization because uh, I just felt an intense pressure to basically be at the top of my game at all times um, as one of the only females in 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 the room in many situations. Um, but uh, but certainly, um, uh, you know, over the years, I think that uh, you know women, every, everyone on, on this particular call can feel confident in asserting themselves much earlier than when they have a hundred percent of the facts. And, uh, your male colleagues are doing that, uh, all the time. <laughs> yeah. We, we used to call it the bluff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Men are much better at bluffing. Uh, it seems gross generality, but, uh, certainly if you've been in a classroom with guys, they seem to raise their hands faster. And even if they don't necessarily know the answer, um, biggest success, in your career, I mean, what was it? Was there a major turning point, Robin, uh, that you you could you would point to that you could share with us? Um, you know, uh, so I'm I started uh, within the originations and acquisitions team, so sourcing and closing uh, new deals and being. Um, what I would call a deal junkie. I just, you know, love the hunt, love the transaction uh, activity and, you know, the, the, you know, negotiations and twists and turn of, of any deal to capture a great opportunity. Um, and so, uh, you know, that element to me was so exciting um, and so fun. Uh, but at some point, essentially, once you get to a certain uh, point in your career, you stop being the kind of doer and producer of that type of business on an individual basis. Um, and you need to switch to be kind of a leader of people and a manager of people and helping steer toward a common goal. And I think um, that was a very, very uh, hard transition for me personally. And I'm, I'm, you know, really proud of, of uh, my growth in that area, um, but would encourage, you know, everybody on the phone, once they get an opportunity to manage people to really 
um, really push yourself to explore yourself as a manager and the best way to lead. Um, cause ultimately it's, uh, you know, as you continue advancing in your career, it's, it's just, you know, it's a people business. And Sarah, let me ask you, because I'm, I'm just thinking about uh, talking about the career trajectories is so what, what was one of your big, biggest successes, uh, in, in your career that, that you feel kind of maybe accelerated, uh, your professional status or your, your, yeah. your, your own feeling about, your, you know, your self-confidence, what was a big success? Well, it, I, we wouldn't been able to start Causeway when we did 20 years ago, if we hadn't been reasonably successful. And, and I think it, when I thought personally, I'd really understood the asset management industry and I had a pretty good grip on non-US markets because we started off as an international equity manager. Uh, it was after I decided that I needed to know what was happening 24 hours in the markets. Now that does sound crazy, but uh, so I would, I, I did a lot of traveling and I would sit on trade desks all over the world and talk to these traders and try to understand. I figured they were trying to cheat me, but I just didn't know how. So the more I talked to them, the more I understood sort of how they think about the world. And, uh, and this was again, a little bit, there's we're much more automated today, but, but it was fascinating to put myself in the shoes of the people I'd be doing business with. And um, not to mention spending a lot of time with companies based all over the world and, and then been able to synthesize all that. It took me really till the very, probably around the year, you know, 2000 or so, um, just at the time when the TMT bubble was beginning to, to deflate, that I, I thought it kind of come together. And just, it just comes from effort and being curious and then sort of just wanting and having this insatiable desire to learn more. And that's partly what I look for when we interview is that those same sort of characteristics, preferably in a female. <laughs> right. So talk about thinking, you know, outside of the box, Karen, which you mentioned. So, you know, what's what's been one of your uh, most successful career moments? So I would say um, probably it's probably a little bit over a decade ago, I got invited to um, be part of an industry group that gives uh, feedback and um really gives updates to the CEOs in the industry. And so I thought that was for me, like a turning point, like, wow, people respect my opinion and actually want to know what <laughs> I'm thinking or what, I, what my view is on the market, what my view is on their strategy, et cetera. So I thought that was for me, a turning point. And the, uh, the other turning point was becoming a portfolio, a full-time portfolio manager. Um, as you said, the numbers are pretty low, 11%, depending on, on which stats, it's anywhere between 11, 11 to 14% of all portfolio managers are female. That's a pretty low number. It is. So really, I'm pushing for more representation there for more people to raise their hand to become a portfolio manager, because a lot of women just don't raise their hand. Um, they're afraid of the job or they're afraid of um, becoming a portfolio manager, but it's really not that much harder. It's, it's just different. Um, so I encourage women to not, not, not be scared to take those risks. You know, it's, um, it's interesting because both you and, and Sarah were, were analysts at one point. So was the analyst foundation really important to becoming a portfolio manager? Was that kind of an essential foundation? For me, it was very important because yeah. um, it really helped me have built like a foundation and just kind of, just really setting um, setting 
setting it up for how for me on how to think about investing overall. So I thought it was really important for me, but not everyone comes into that portfolio management job with, with analyst experience. So I really, it, it really depends on the individuals. And, you know, switching we, from successes to the biggest setback. So Karen, what, what has been the biggest professional setback that you've had and, and how did so you many. overcome it? <laughs> I would say, I mean, the biggest ones is what are when you don't get the same opportunities that you think you should get as other right. people. And then that probably that happened over time and over many years, multiple times. So, and, and, and that's for me has been, you know, another turning point where I, I decide to raise my hand, speak up and say, why am I not getting this opportunity? And nine out of 10 times it was, we don't know, or it was, there was no really good reason. And so I would finally get that opportunity. And it really was because people didn't, you know, I wasn't speaking up as much as I could to show interest in a particular role. Wait, how important it is. Sarah was saying, you know, 100 pounds <laughs> opening the door. So uh, is not to be afraid to ask for what you want, or at least to say, look, I'm interested. That and that that's taken some time for you to get to that point. Yes, right? because yeah. I, I grew up in an Asian household where you kind of just didn't say much <laughs> to your elders, you respected them and you, you thought they made the best decisions all the time. And that's, you just took it. Right. And uh, I realized that's not the case. <laughs> so, so Sarah, uh, biggest setback, career setback for you and, and how you overcame it, if, if you did, yeah. and what you learned from it. Well, mine was entirely self-induced and in order to make that transition from portfolio, so analyst, portfolio manager, that was okay because portfolio managers at Causeway are also analysts, but it's portfolio manager. And then, and then being a real CEO, as opposed to, you know, the organization was so small, you know, with this, our COO did all the administrative stuff, but there's so much people management involved in my job. Mm -hmm. And I made some huge errors. I had to actually go and actually study human psychology. I had to read and think about it and understand what all the biases were that I had, not to mention the people that I was mismanaging and you know how to run a meeting, get back to the, the basics that I ended up with hiring someone that only one person in my organization really wanted. He happened to be incredibly important, but I kowtowed to one, alienated the rest. And it turned out it was a bad hire. It was a cultural misfit. And I lost the confidence of my colleagues doing that. It took me a while to regain it. And, and I didn't, I really, it was just, it was such an obvious misstep. I still kind of beat myself up today, but, but it's, it's so important to get some level of consensus and buy-in, get people involved in a decision, get them to take a stake in it, make it their decision. And I had to learn that the hard way. Yeah. So, so how did you rectify that? I mean, so you well, we fired you, him. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we got rid of them, but, and that was awful. I had to do all that. I tried to clean up my own mess and it was expensive. You know, we had to pay him. Uh, and I took me, I would say a couple of years after that, this was a long time ago to, to kind of reestablish my own credibility as a, as a, as a true team member, leader and manager. And did you actually, you know, kind of have a confession to your employees? I mean, you know, how, how did you? How did yeah, you well, the confession was the, the employees termination of them. I mean, I've never heard people whoop down the hall like they did when I got <laughs> like they heard that guy was leaving. Yeah. <laughs> Robin, so biggest professional setback for you? Um, I, you know, similar to what what Sarah just described, um, I've had. I've had to, you know, learn a lot of management lessons 
real time, you know, and affecting other people's careers and uh, our team. And um, uh, one of the things that um, that I've really taken away from from doing this now for for a while is essentially uh, I I came into the manager role I would say uh, being more of a a kind of conflict avoider from that perspective in terms of you know if you were if you had an issue with a team member. Um, uh, or they were having an issue with a colleague, for example, you know, hoping that it would work out and resolve itself and um, be okay over time. What I've learned just time and time again is essentially you need to address those things as soon as they happen, uh, hit the conflict head on. Otherwise, you're, you know, creating toxicity among among the team. Um, so I've had to learn some hard lessons that way as well. And um, but I think, uh, you know, there's there's no there's no alternative to kind of having some of those experiences play out on on your watch as a manager and then, uh, you know, figuring out how to grow from there. Another question for for each of you, and, and that is, why do each of you think you've been as successful as you have been? I mean, you know, what have you done more than your peers or differently from your peers or your competitors? How do you explain your success? And uh, Sarah, I'll start with you. Uh, I, if I knew what it was, if there was some sort of formula, I would probably try to multiply it many times over. But keeping great people within an organization requires trusting them and acknowledging them and making sure that they know they're valued. And of course, I screwed that up initially too, but I finally figured that out. And and when it really mattered, and I mentioned earlier, having 29 other partners, these people know they're valued. They may not have a large stake, but they see others who who are perhaps a few years ahead of them who have larger stakes in the organization. And they see it's a real meritocracy that, that individuals are rewarded based on the contributions they make. And there's no, no politics, no favoritism. That to me is absolutely critical. And I think that's... Um, that's in part what makes the culture so strong and so collaborative. And what kinds of contributions? Because, you know, when I think of a money management firm, I'm thinking great investment idea or, you know, that you, you know, you outperform your benchmark yeah. or whatever. But is it more than that? I mean, what what, what kind of contributions are you talking about? In, well, in your depends culture. Depends on the role. I mean, for, okay. the inv for investment staff, and it depends again if you're an analyst and if we have a two to four year program, and then some get promoted to senior analyst and others move on and do something else or go to graduate school. And then for senior analysts, there's an actual formula. They demanded it, so we let them have it. Uh, so they know in terms of weightings, idea generation, and then the accuracy of their models and, and their collaborative effort and so on. I'm not giving you exactly the sort of secret sauce, but, but in each one of those things is weighted and it helps them understand for their bonus what it's going to look like. Obviously, um, they, they'll be part of however the firm is doing as well. And then for portfolio managers, it's based on their performance, rolling three-year performance attribution of the stocks that they cover. And so they're next on the block all the time. Uh, they, they, have, they make the final decision on a buy or sell. Uh, it can only be overridden by mm -hmm. the other most senior person, the president of Causeway or me. And we do it very infrequently because it's mm -hmm. demotivating. So people know it's really clear um, what it is they're measured on. And, and then there's the... Uh, 
the additional part. I can't even describe this. Of course, everybody needs to get involved with clients. Even, you know, our traders meet clients. Everybody meets clients. And they used to come through the office pre-COVID. And, you know, that was kind of an exciting thing to show them around. But we need a, a level of collaboration and mentoring and people involved in recruiting. There's just a myriad of different roles that everybody, all or you call it different hats, people have to wear in order to be a true contributor to the overall organization. And we measure all of that. Yeah. And, and K- Karen, what, what, how do you explain your success and what do you see yourself doing differently or more of maybe than your peers or competitors do? So I would say as an investor, um, there are a couple of things that I think that I really focused on over the years and that's relationships. And that's even like, and that's having really long-term relationships with management teams, having actually really long relationships with people who end up being CEOs, CFOs of companies. Right. And so really understanding how they think that there's a bit of psychology in that too. And I have relationships, long-term relationships with regulators that I still keep in t- contact with. So it's having these long-term relationships that I think have been really beneficial. The other part of it is really understanding what in- information is important. Some people think that just having a lot of information and knowing a lot of information is key to being a good investor. But I think it's really about figuring out what the right in- information is and how the market is going to react to it is more important than just the volume of information that you should know. So I think those are kind of where I think uh, I have some key strengths versus my competitors. And Robin, same question to you. What do you, what do you see yourself uh, or have you seen yourself doing differently than peers or competitors, or, or how do you explain your professional success? Sure. I guess, um, you know, uh, beyond a lot of really talented uh, people that I work with, um, I think I've just consistently had a very high sense of urgency across the board consistently over many, many years. And so uh, just being known as someone who will get things done and do it well um, and basically take take everything very seriously and and um, with you know a high degree of quality. Um, you know, building that re- reputation over time and and being someone that people can count on is ends up being really meaningful. And well, we're, we're, excuse go me. ahead. We Angela. need to wrap up in another minute. We've got a record number of questions going. Here. Oh, great, terrific. Yeah. So, um, why don't I'm just going to ask one last question and then let's go, let's go to the questions uh, from the audience. That's terrific, Angela. So, this is my my uh, question to each of you: If you could only give one piece of career advice uh, to our audience, what would it be? So, uh, do you want to start, Sarah? Oh, dear. Well, I want to pack a lot into the one piece, which is, and we've said some of this already, but be confident, read everything, get your hands on, because you it to be great in equities, you have to be knowledgeable, sort of in an omniscient way, <laughs> like you have to read everything, know everything you, you can't, there aren't enough hours in the day, and then being just insatiably curious, because that that helps you um, in the desire to learn more. This is a very competitive industry, and those who are more driven and are able to, and this is why, and it's also becoming a very technology-focused industry, because a lot of what we need to do is absorb data that is not um, typical, we call alternative data, mm-hmm. and then make something of it. But those people who are really focused on that and then find that satisfying are going to thrive. Karen, what's, what's the one piece of career advice? If you could only give one to our audience, what would it be? Don't limit yourself. 
because I, I, women tend to limit themselves. Um, and they don't realize, you know, a lot of times there are, there'll be moments where you want to step back from your career, but I would say just lean into it and, um, and don't, I mean, you could be more successful than your husband, your spouse, your partner. And, um, what I see most of is women leaving at the height of their career and then wanting to come back later, but they're never, it's hard to be back, get back to the same place. And you never, and your husband may not be as successful as you. And so why limit yourself? Robin. Um, I would say to, to make sure that you're um, in a role where you can see a high volume of transaction activity or opportunities so that um, you can just be learning as wide of a funnel of information as possible. Um, as you, you know, progress in your career, you may need to, you know, be more targeted and be more narrow, but early on in your career, um, the best thing that you can do to position yourself for success, I think is to just, uh, eat from a fire hose or drink from a fire hose. And so make sure you're in a seat that enables you to do that. Super advice. All right, Laurie, you know, you've been feeling a ton of questions, so shoot. Thank let's, you. Well, first, thank you. Thank you to um, to this terrific discussion. It's been really insightful, and uh, it sparked a lot of questions from our audience. So, just to just to pick a few, um, uh, a few people have asked about ESG. So we know that that Tesla was dropped from the um, ESG index today or yesterday, and there's a lot of discussion around ESG kind of measurement and metrics and just ESG as a whole. What, what do you think, what do each of you think about ESG? Is it here to stay? Is it a bubble? How do you think about where this is going to um, head and how it's going to be impacting investors' decision-making process over the long-term across different asset classes? And can I suggest, Sarah, start with this because I know Causeway is doing major work in ESG. Yes, well, I'll keep it brief. Um, you can go to our website and read what we've, some of the work we've, we've done. But to me, none of this is new. Environmental, social governance have been criteria we've looked for in companies from the beginning of time. It's just that now it's there's a nomenclature and it's uh, there are actual there's data to measure and there's data to test on. And so what we've done is determined which of these and how to weight criteria within them can help us create performance that's better than client benchmarks. So I believe it's here to stay. And I think the, the data will become more transparent, more comparable between companies and between countries. And we'll find it um, quite useful as part, not all of our analyst toolkit. Yeah, and I can jump in right after that. I would say exactly what Sarah said. It was the way how how we invested as <laughs> anyways. I mean, we can't, you have to be considering all of these issues as part of your investment ideas and part as part of your investment thesis. And Capital Group, we are embracing ESG. We have a actually we've been hiring like crazy in that area. So you know, we we don't see it as a fad. And we we we've actually taken a very long-term thoughtful approach on how we think about ESG investing. Um, and no different within real estate. I, I think it's here to stay. And, um, you know, the built environment is a big component um, of the carbon footprint uh, that, you know, comprises the, the E of the ESG. So it's a big topic uh, within the commercial real estate industry in terms of um, how to reduce the carbon footprint of the built environment. Uh, you've seen for office in particular, a lot of uh, large tenants come out with um, 
uh, net zero pledges. And so you'll, you'll see a lot of major uh, companies only look to lease in office buildings that can meet their uh, climate targets and, and uh, be an environmentally friendly space, which goes to what we were talking about earlier in the panel in terms of the flight to quality to, to newer buildings that can meet those types of demand within uh, certain asset classes. Um, but, you know, real estate in particular uh, has uh, a uni is uniquely positioned to be able to address these issues, you know, with affordable housing, environmentally friendly assets, and from a governance perspective, um, you know, who you're partnering with, how you monitor your investments, um, uh, you know, who you work with from as a lender, for example, um, all of those things come into come into play within real estate. Thank you. And Robin, if we could just um, ask for, 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 your, for your time a little bit more. So uh, there's a question around sort of, um, you know, do you see lags between what happens in the public markets and how that then um, sort of uh, starts to trickle into the, the commercial real estate market? And if so, how do you see things evolving, kind of uh, how the effects of public markets that we're seeing today, how will they show up and when will they show up in commercial real estate? Yes. Um, so, uh, so REITs in the public market, uh, since their peak have, have dropped about 20%. Um, and obviously the public markets are able to mark to market immediately and private markets, you know, real estate doesn't transact in that way. Um, so in the private markets, um, that price discovery has not played out yet. And typically what you've seen is that um, at least for real estate valuations, the public the public REIT uh, kind of stock price movements can overshoot what ends up happening within the private real estate markets. Um, so taking multifamily, for example, uh, before this volatility, uh, the REIT pricing would have resulted in basically valuations of a 3.8 cap for multifamily. Now with the price adjustment, that translates more to a 4.8 cap. Um, I don't think that you're going to see apartments essentially have a hundred basis point widening from a cap rate perspective, and so it's probably widening somewhere in the middle. And what we're what we're seeing so far uh, on the ground within multifamily, just as an example, again, uh, is more in the 25 to 50 basis point range. Um, so it just is going to take time to play out. But um, I think uh, if I if I had to predict, I think the public markets um, end up overshooting what the private markets do. And so a question for, for all three of you, can you kind of walk us through um, what a day in the life of a portfolio manager looks like? Who might want to start? Well, I'll start and just say it depends what their stocks are doing. I mean, <laughs> if they're falling, their day is bad uh, because they they know they have a they their investment thesis is being tested. And I, I'm kidding a little bit. It's it's typically again like at, at our firm analyst work. You're you're working alongside your group of analysts, understanding better the company. Think about doing a 360 degree view of the the company itself, its own competitive positioning, its um, suppliers, its customers, its compet its competitors, and then getting a much better idea how it all functions together and what the sensitivities are and what really makes that business tick. So that's the that's a lot of it. And then I'm going through the elaborate valuation models done by analysts to make sure they're accurate and that the assumptions applied in them are reasonable. And then being able to convince others when there's a stock action needs to be taken either a buy or sell that this is something that's good for clients and makes sense in the context of the portfolio. 
I would say that no day is the same. <laughs> Every day is a different day. One day you could be traveling to go see Tesla, <laughs> to go to drive their cars, to see how they're doing. Um, and another day you could be in meetings, just uh, just having a powwow with all the different portfolio managers and analysts globally and trying to figure out what as which asset class we should be investing in, what looks like the best value now. Um, so every day is a, a pretty different day. Um, we do we do talk about markets almost every day, but but there we actually do we implemented quiet days too now because we want to give people time to think and just to like sit back and say, hey, how should we be thinking about this and giving people quiet time too, which is and that that has been tremendous in terms of just letting us be a little bit more creative um, and and not jamming us with meetings all the time. So every day is a different day, I would say but it is very dynamic and, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, everything could change tomorrow. So just be prepared. Sure. And I would, I would add, um, you know, certainly within the real estate investment world, not only are you, you know, reviewing analysis and investment memos and, and working with your team to, uh, figure out the, the right transactions to pursue, but, um, in addition, there's a lot of travel for property tours and market tours and, you know, meeting with brokers and sponsors and lenders uh, to understand uh, in a firsthand way through talking with relationships, um, uh, what's happening on the ground in different submarkets across the country. Thank you. So all of you mentioned, and, and, and we know this is true, that relationships matter a lot, right? As you're building your career, specifically for um, really everyone having effective mentors really makes a difference in, in the career trajectory that, that we all take. So do you have any advice that you could share for people starting out? So, you know, what has your experience been like? And do you have any advice for how to build effective relationships, um, you know, we, we kind of want to stay away from the term networking because you don't want it to be transactional, but how do you actually build a community around you, um, both sort of above you and below you that, that, that can help you move forward in the way that you'd like? What's your advice on, on, on how to go about that? And maybe specifically for women um, and sort of the additional challenges that may come with that. It is, it is hard to build relationships uh, when you're in a male dominated field and you're the only woman and, you know, things might even get misconstrued, right? You're not sort of able to, to, to access the, the same social opportunities. What, what have you found um, to help you overcome that? And, and what advice can you give? I'm happy to jump in again. I mean, just because I'm, I have no fear that go with affinity groups, start with the, you know, high school classmates, if there are any that are in finance, it might be useful to you. And again, you could call it community or networking, but also you just a relationship you're forming and it's a level of trust between you and the other person, as long as you've got something to offer information or just friendship. And then there's your college classmates and people you've met there. And if you go to grad school, again, I mentioned that earlier, a whole nother group of individuals who could be influential or informative or somehow, and they'll introduce you to other people. But I always advise those that are in the process. I, I like the term networking, but I'll say community building. When you go out and have coffee with a person who's doing something interesting, you think you might learn from before you leave, get at least two or three other recommendations or or introductions from that individual. Don't just let it be one, make it multiply so that the, all of a sudden you've got three more people to have coffee with. And I am just 
just remind yourself it's, you have to work a little harder, but it's worth it. Yeah. And I would build internal relationships within your firm and external. Right. And so I think what I've been really good at is building external relationships. I've got down, that down pat, but I'm not as good as building internal relationships for me. Cause it, they has, I always feel like I need to have an authentic relationship with everyone. So it, it is a little bit harder for me to build internal relationships. And so that is something I continue. I have to continue to work on, but it's really finding commonality with people and also it not being a one-way relationship, as Sarah said, it really has to be a two-way relationship for it to really last and endure and make a difference and have an impact in your career. Um, because when it is just one way, it's, 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 it's tough to maintain a relationship that way. But just ask someone for coffee, um, ask a small group. Um, actually, you know, I, last week, they, you know, I asked some, uh, some younger folks to go for coffee and they said, no, oh, none of us drink coffee. So we went to get juice. So <laughs> figure out what the other person's interests are and, and, and try to try to reach them there and bridge the gap there. Yeah. And I, I would say there's, you know, nothing, nothing better for building a relationship than being in the trenches on a project together or a deal closing together, or, you know, some type of shared goal that, that you're each contributing to. Um, and that can be with internal people or external folks that you're working on a transaction with. So, um, you know, every single thing that you're doing, that you're executing on is an opportunity to, to basically, show that you're driven, show that you're curious about the other person, show that you can be valuable and, and, you know, form a connection. Any suggestions for um, candidates as they're starting out to stand out and, and sort of distinguish themselves from, from the other pool of applicants? What does that look like? I love it when people can show their creative side. If there's like some music that they, that they compose or something that they did that was different, that's out of the, like, then I, then I think, oh my gosh, this person could be really good at the job versus someone who did, you know, studied business finance, knows their economic, you know, is great at accounting. Like, I feel like that's the basics. So I, I always like to see someone who's a little bit different, who could think a little di differently and who could bring a different perspective. Um, so I, I think it's really bringing your personality and bringing like a different perspective or something that's a little bit different from everyone else. Mm -hmm. Can I follow up on that? How, how do you do that? And do you have, uh, do either any of you have an example of a candidate that stood out in the application process or something and that, uh, how, how did they bring your attention to them? I always ask them what they do outside of work. And that brings on like a different conversation because I met this, this guy and I didn't know he, he, he like meeting him. I never had the, the impression that he was like a, a vociferous reader and he, he knew everything about every, every book out there. And it was just kind of cool to connect with him in that way. Um, we shared some and, and, and share some interest, but just like, and, and he looks at things very differently. So I thought that was just, he just, just asking them outside, you know, something that's like not a normal traditional interview question. I just wanted to add something because it just occurred to me Well, Karen was speaking that, um, yeah, that, that something different, sometimes it's hard to even put it into words because you sort of know it when you see it, but the, what really stands out, if it's a research role, that person had better done research on the employer. Like I, I'm always horrified when people don't really know what's on our website or they haven't really read all our papers. They haven't 
looked at our bios and they come in and try to wing it. I just, you know, just something inside of me just dies. So like the more, if it's a research job, do research on the employer, research everything, get everything you get off the internet, talk to people, come in with some insight into the organization in which you're, you're applying that other candidates wouldn't have because you, 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 you researched it harder and more with more, more effort. Um, I guess, you know, my thoughts are more uh, pretty, pretty basic in terms of what comes across in an interview, which is, you know, if you're confident and enthusiastic about the opportunity and can also demonstrate, you know, a high level of understanding for the work that you've accomplished in your prior roles, um, that is a meaningful differentiator. I mean, there, there are a lot of candidates that, that uh, you interview over, over your career when you're looking at for uh, a new hire that just, they just don't stand out because the enthusiasm they're bringing to the interview just it's not their, um, their, you know, kind of command of what they have on their resume just isn't quite there when you dig a little bit deeper. Uh, they're not, they're not able to show up with the details to back up that bullet on their resume. So, um, you know, I think just being able to be, um, you know, go deep and, and on any question you're asked about what you're putting on there and also just be really excited about the opportunity. It goes a long way. One last question from, from me and the audience, and I'll turn it back over to Consuelo. So uh, you also all mentioned confidence. How do, you, how do you suggest, what advice can you give for how to develop more confidence, both, both in terms of um, sort of um, as an investment professional, um, as well as how you engage with your team in meetings um, as sort of a broader professional? Any tips on how to gain more confidence throughout your career? Um, I'll jump in here. I um, early on had just tremendous anxiety about presenting. Um, you know, public speaking was a huge mental block for me. Um, and, uh, you know, just over time doing it over and over and over and over again. And just, you know, every time there was an opportunity to present, never backing down, always doing it. And eventually, uh, you know, you find your own style and way to do it um, uh, that works for you, that is confident. Um, we also uh, at, at Canyon from time to time actually have had public speaking coaches come in when there were, you know, really important kind of large scale presentations that different people across the firm had to do. And I actually found that invaluable. So if you ever have the opportunity to work with a coach formally, um, there's a lot of uh, kind of pointers and, and things that you might not think that you're doing that when someone else is watching you comes across um, pretty, pretty clearly. And I, I said it before I emulate what I think, you know, the trick that I do is what would my husband say? What would Sam say in this situation that really makes me think, oh, I can do this or say this. So that's been really helpful. But I agree with Robin. I mean, public speaking for me, it was just a nightmare. I mean, my heart would just pound and it still pounds out of my chest all the time when I do public speaking, but it is something that you get more comfortable with over time. So practice, practice, practice. The other thing is what I've done over my, um, over my career is find an ally, someone who could, what I would call amplify your voice, because at times when you speak up in particular, if you're with a room of 20 guys, 30 guys, people actually speak over you. 
And um, so what I found, you know, I would actually, it would, it would be the culprit that I would go to and say, Hey, the next time I say something, could you repeat what I say and amplify what I said? And I, I would tell them, I feel like everyone just talks over me. And they were like, Oh, no one ever talks over you. I'm like, yeah, I feel like that. And so actually these little tricks that you can do to actually help you build confidence, knowing that you have an ally that whenever you speak, they'll speak up behind you to make sure that your voice is heard. So that's something that, that I've employed over time too. And I'll just add to that. Those are really well put. Confidence is earned. So the more successes you have, the more confident you become inevitably. And so get out there and succeed. So, Laura, do you want me to take it from here? Just I've got a couple more questions. Those, those were fantastic questions from the audience and also wonderful answers from our panelists, of course. Um, I'm going to take you three back uh, to, to the beginning. Um, and that is, did you have uh, any idea when you graduated from college or Tuck um, in Sarah's uh, case that you would be where you are today? Did you have any idea that you would end up doing what you are today? Sarah. I had no idea. I had no idea. I, I was, I'd started, I went into investment banking and I thought, wow, this is a one-way trip to hell. Uh, then I left to start a database business. I thought this is good. This is a great business. Just turned out to be much more challenging and required much more seed capital than I had. So I kind of fell into asset management, but a great career fit. You just know it when you're there. Uh, and that's, I encourage my own kids to just keep looking until you find it. Don't settle. That is so encouraging, actually, um, for the, the multiple jobs and careers we probably all will have. Uh, Karen, did you have any idea when you, when uh, you graduated? Absolutely not. And my kids still don't understand what I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, and Robin, did you have any idea you would be where you are today? No, I thought I was uh, going into the business side of, of entertainment. Um, I had uh, gotten into theater production during college and just loved being on the business side of theater. Um, and so I took an investment banking job in Los Angeles, thinking that that would ultimately lead me to um, connections within the entertainment industry and just fell in love with real estate instead. Uh, so what motivates you professionally now, Sarah? I'll start with you. What motivates you the most professionally now? It's satisfying clients. It's the uh, it's our guide star, and it is it's been a really tough environment for value managers until recently. And I like building product. I'm kind of a builder, so I like building something that clients want. And we're doing we've launched some new strategies in ESG, and that's really satisfying when we create something that clients want and it and it delivers what they need, which is a, a certain performance pattern. And that's, that's what makes me the happiest. Karen, what is motivating you the most professionally? Well, I mean, I think it's two things. It's just being an investor. You want to always be a successful investor for your clients. I, yeah, I agree with what Sarah says. The other thing for me is um, showing up and representing, right? Because it's in particular, I feel like I want to make sure that the next generation sees more women and they see more people like all of us here today. Um, so so they, they know that there's opportunities for them that exist in finance and on Wall Street. And, be, you know, be, being you can become a portfolio manager at any of these firms. Robin, what motivates you most professionally? 
I I love the creativity that um, you're able to to have within real estate investments, and um, it's not you know just investing behind a community uh, a computer. You're able to get out um, you know and be in communities and actually you know invest in bricks and mortar on different street corners and you know change landscapes. And so um, it's really exciting to watch our investments over time and watch cities grow and change. Um, and that's really really fun. Next question to each of you. What haven't you accomplished yet? What are your remaining goals? Sarah? Oh, so much. And I'm running out of time. My God, there's so much to do. I get <laughs> you mean you're getting like, older? Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, like, there's so much to do. But I, I really want a more... I want a, a business that will go on in perpetuity long after I've retired and I'm doing whatever I'm doing then. And that requires... a building something that is just in, impervious to whatever the markets can throw at it and being, and the, I talked about diversifying one's portfolio. I want to diversify the firm so that we don't necessarily have to leave equities, but there are ways of having investments that aren't quite so market sensitive and perhaps they zig when the others zag. And that, that would be a kind of final goal is to create a firm that even when I'm in my rocking chair, you know, it's still there and it's still thriving. Karen, what haven't you accomplished yet professionally? What's your goal? Uh, well, I mean, professional. I I don't really. I don't know if I have a goal. <laughs> I, I don't think there. I mean, I, for me, it's good, continuing um, to do what I do as long as I enjoy it. But I also want to continue to make sure that we have um, better representation, more diversity at every level in our firm. And I think that's really important for me that when I leave Capital Group, that it looks quite different than when I started. And Robin, same question to you. Um, I think, you know, most recently um, on my mind is kind of furthering how to, I don't know if you can perfect it, but how to perfect this more hybrid and remote work environment that we find ourselves in and really um, solidifying a culture and and team environment in that hybrid environment that we're all now in. Um, And, you know, we've certainly, uh, LA where where I'm based, had a very long remote period. So we're all kind of continuing to find our groove in this hybrid world. Um, but I think there's a lot of positives that have come from it. Um, but, uh, you know, still need to kind of evolve uh, how the team atmosphere works, uh, in my view, in this new world. And Angela and Laurie, I'm going to, I think we're wrapping up here. I'm going to yeah. turn it back to you, but I've, I've just been so inspired by uh, these three women, these three remarkable women, and also how infectious their enthusiasm is and the fantastic opportunities uh, that they clearly represent in what they're doing professionally. It's, it's very exciting. It really, this was one of our best events and Karen summarized it well, what the pink wall is all about. She can be what she can see and your panelists were fantastic. Um, as well as that, your enthusiasm infectious. And Lori, your UCLA, the Fink Center has been such a wonderful partner to us. And uh, Lori was also the one that recruited UC Berkeley, who for the first time joined us in this partnership. The um, the Consortium of Data Analytics and Risk, that's our partner here. Uh, we hope to extend this to other schools. That is our goal. So anyone with an idea for that, please let us know. Um, I want to thank also our community sponsors, Peyton and Regal, the Canyon Group, and uh, Benefit Financial Services Group. Um, And of course, thanks to all of our 
our UCLA technicians, our wealth track, by the way, this takes a village. There are probably 20 volunteers on this that are working. Our own Casey Buhari, who uh, is our CMO at WISE, who does a lot of work, and Lori's team. I could go on and on, but this was definitely a team effort. And we thank everyone enormously. And just so everyone knows, part of this is going to go on WealthTrack eventually. Uh, it will be on the WISE website, on the UCLA website, on the UC Berkeley web website. So this is not the end. You will be absolutely memorialized. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you all. And a special thanks, of course, to Consuelo, because uh, she's a, a moderator without peer. Thank you, Angela, to you too and WISE, which is just an incredible organization. So onward. Onward is right. Till the next time. Till, and all of you that signed up for this, you will be getting an email about our next event, which will uh, be on how to start investing. So we're going to go a, a more to the personal finance side on our next event. But thank you all and can't thank you enough. So. <laughs>